When I originally set out to do this podcast back in May of this year, my initial vision of it was to have a podcast that specifically focused on social media. I wanted to do a podcast on how social media and theology intersect, and so I invested in some research material to help me get this project started. By the time I finished the first book in that stack of books that I ordered, which was Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, I realized that focusing solely on social media, while not a bad idea in of itself, wouldn't be enough. Social media didn't arise in a vacuum. It's the culmination of several different strands of technology and media that collide into one of the most powerful and most destructive mediums ever created. Neil Postman passed away in October of 2003, but two months before that, a collective of former employees from a digital marketing firm would take a risk on the creation of a brand new website called MySpace. Nobody, not even Neil Postman himself, could conceive of how the humble beginnings of MySpace would eventually give way to the most significant revolution of media since television and the internet, and how the world would drastically change 15 years later as a result. Before we keep going, I want to say that the rest of this season is not going to be like the first half of the season when it comes to keeping things in chronological perspective. We started with words and then went to television and then went to the early internet, and now here we are at the modern internet. And the point was to show the effects of change on society over time. And with regard to everything up to this point, those changes were relatively slow moving and easier to process in hindsight. But we can't reasonably do that with social media. The Facebook we know and use today is not the same Facebook we knew when we signed up and began using it a decade ago. In fact, the Facebook we know and use today isn't even the same Facebook we knew and were using a full year ago. Where television and the pre-social media internet stayed relatively stable in how they worked and what their effects were as mediums, social media is defined by its instability. The things we discuss in this episode about how social media changes the way we think about God and our neighbor have a somewhat limited shelf life because by this time next year, the field will have changed and there will be some new issues to consider. However, I think there are some aspects of social media that are always going to be true regardless of what future changes might bring. And that's what we're going to focus on in this episode. Also, just for the record, I'm only going to be focusing on four social media platforms in this episode, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and the greatest social media platform of all time, Twitter. Other platforms might get mentioned when relevant, but otherwise I'm going to keep it to those four platforms. So what even is social media? It's a term that everyone knows and is familiar with, but what does it actually mean? That's a good question because depending upon who you ask, you will get totally different answers. And if you ask the same person one day, you might get a different answer a few years later. Merriam-Webster defines social media as forms of electronic communication such as websites for social networking and microblogging, through which users create online communities to share information, ideas, personal messages, and other content 
such as videos. Wikipedia's definition has changed several times over the years, but their current one is social media are interactive computer-mediated technologies that facilitate the creation and sharing of information, ideas, career interests, and forms of expression via virtual communities and networks. But one of the best definitions that I've heard comes from Marta Kagan, creator of the business presentation program Ace the Pitch. And her definition is, social media is an umbrella term that defines the various activities that integrate technology, social interaction, and the construction of words, pictures, video, and audio. This is the definition that I want to work with because I think it captures everything that we might think about when we think of social media. Social media is technology and social interaction and lengthy Facebook text bombs and dank memes and family photos and videos of talented people doing talented things and videos of violence and terror and collective celebration and mourning and debates about politics and religion and fan theories and so much more. Part of the reason why defining social media is so hard is because it's so massive and always evolving and it encompasses so many different things. And thinking about social media as an umbrella term is a useful and pragmatic approach to such a vague and somewhat nebulous concept. But even though social media itself is hard to define, we can make better sense of it if we break it down into its various parts. Social media combines all of the major mediums that we've looked at so far in this season into one single medium. And I think it's safe to say that, in a sense, the path of technological development in human history has all led to this point. If the printing press revolutionized the written word and further technological developments made printing more powerful, social media has created the possibility of a tweet from an ordinary individual going viral and being seen by hundreds of thousands of people in a matter of minutes. That can't be said of any book or magazine or tract or pamphlet, really even of any online blog or news article. If television upended a world that makes sense of itself through the spoken and written world and turns it into a world where our discourse is now based in images, Social media capitalizes on this by empowering anybody to upload videos ranging from smartphone recordings to studio-produced shows. And I'm not even going to get into the untold number of cat, baby, and food photos. Not only do we have the behemoth known as YouTube and the millions of channels within it, we also have Facebook Watch and, as of a few weeks ago, Instagram TV. And all of these are designed to be the successor of the television that Neil Postman knew and understood when he wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death. If the internet upended our sense of community by giving individuals the possibility of having a community free from any geographic or physical constraint, social media fills the gaps in those digital communities by giving us profile pictures, full names, job titles, family photos, and other information designed to make us feel as though we truly know the person we are talking to online. Even though social media is technically a byproduct of the internet, we could call it maybe a sub-medium of the internet or a medium within a medium, it incorporates all the technology and media that we use and consume in one place. 
We used this quote from Nicholas Carr in the previous episode of this show, but I think the quote is still true even if you change the wording to focus specifically on social media and not just the internet in general. Traditional media, even electronic ones, are being refashioned and repositioned as they go through the shift to online distribution. When the net absorbs a medium, it recreates that medium in its own image. It not only dissolves the medium's physical form, it injects the medium's content with hyperlinks, breaks up the content into searchable chunks, and surrounds the content with the content of all the other media it has absorbed. All these changes in the form of the content also change the way we use, experience, and even understand the content. At the risk of sounding overdramatic, social media is kind of a black hole. When MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter first appeared, they weren't anything more than these fun, trendy websites that people used but didn't take all that seriously. Now it's impossible to not take social media seriously. And there's no place you can go where you do not see or feel its effects. Even if you close down your personal social media accounts, you'll still hear about that stupid and idiotic thing some celebrity tweeted out, or someone will show you the hilarious meme they found on Facebook. You will be regularly asked, why aren't you on social media? And while people will think it's noble and admirable that you're willing to buck the trend and not be on social media, they'll have zero desire to actually join you. Social media occupies the same cultural significance that television did when Neil Postman wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, with everyone implicitly assuming that you're participating in social media in some way, just as everybody implicitly assumed you were watching something on television. The idea of not watching television at all, or not using social media at all, is very culturally unpopular. And if you've ever contemplated the idea of staying off or getting off of social media, you know that there are a million reasons that come up in your mind as to why you can't leave. But why can't we leave? Why do we all seem to struggle to mitigate or control social media's influence on our lives? Earlier in the season, we asked, how do you read a book? And how do you watch television to reflect on what these mediums demand of us in order to use them? Remember, mediums are not value neutral, and they ask us to do certain things in order to use them. And we can discern what those things are when we look at what it means to actually use social media. So, how do you use social media? Even asking this question poses some difficulty because unlike reading a book or watching television, there's no one truly uniform way to interact with social media. Some people use social media as their writing and creative outlet. Some people post status updates about anything and everything. And some people simply like to share what other people post as their main contribution to their social media pages. Some people use it as a networking tool. Some of us are just here for the dank memes. And some of us use social media because it's our job to manage social media accounts professionally. Whatever your specific use of social media looks like, there is one thing that we all share in common regardless of how we use social media. We all use timelines. So let's narrow it down. How do you use a timeline on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram? Well, first, you have to create an account. Obvious, I know. And then you need to submit and fill out as much information about yourself as you can. And then you need to follow or friend 
people, brands, companies, or subjects in order to populate your timeline with content. And that content can be photos, videos, text updates, articles, GIFs, polls, live streams, and so much more. The content that is shown to you in your timeline is selected based off a variety of factors, which are mysteriously and often annoyingly mediated through a background process known as the algorithm of whatever platform you're using. Once your timeline is served to you, you have two options. You can start going down, scrolling down on the timeline, and the content will become less and less relevant to you the further down you go. Or you can swipe up and refresh your timeline, and the algorithm will serve up a brand new batch of content for you. And after a while, you'll start seeing the same content you've already seen, regardless of how many times you refresh it. Now, at any point in time, You can post content of your own in the form of text, images, videos. You can like, comment, share, and retweet the content of others. And all of this not only impacts your timeline, but the timelines of others. The more a post or content gets interacted with, the technical term for this is the engagement rate, the more the algorithm will promote that content in the timelines of people, even people who aren't your friends or followers. The less interaction the content gets, or if the content is not content the algorithm wants to promote, example being a post that has a million hyperlinks to various websites, the algorithm will suppress that content and refuse to serve it to as many people as it would for good content. And at the time of this recording, good content is video. And specifically, short video or live streaming video through Facebook Live, Periscope, or Instagram's live streaming. Text still performs just as fine on Twitter, but it's getting more difficult on Facebook. And while Instagram is just now beginning to promote the ability to include outbound URLs via their paid story promotions, Facebook still largely frowns upon posts that contain outbound URLs. And even though video is in right now, horizontal video's time in the sun might be running out. Consider this a free professional social media tip on the house. Facebook and Instagram are doing everything in their power to make vertical video the next big thing. And given the unbelievable and brutal destruction of Snapchat at the hand of Facebook and Instagram through their story features, the ability to make vertical video stick seems more likely than not. But what's good content right now wasn't necessarily good content a year ago. And by this time next year, good content might be something totally new and different. And speaking of content and timelines, how much content are we talking about here? Every minute, 510,000 comments are posted to Facebook, and 293,000 statuses are updated, and 136,000 photos are uploaded by 1.7 billion daily active users. For comparison's sake, there's 7.7 billion people that live on the entire planet. There's an average of 6,000 new tweets every second which results in 500 million tweets per day. 80% of Instagram's 1 billion users are outside the United States. And of those 1 billion total Instagram users, 500 million of them 
use Instagram every day and like 4.2 billion posts per day and post 95 million posts and 400 million stories a day. YouTube has 1.9 billion total users, and while their daily active user base is comparatively smaller at just 30 million people, those 30 million people watch 5 billion videos a day, 500 million of those coming from mobile views alone. Every minute, 300 hours of new video is uploaded to YouTube, which translates into 432,000 hours of new YouTube footage per day. We haven't even touched LinkedIn, Facebook Messenger, Snapchat, Pinterest, WhatsApp, and some of the other social media platforms that still boast insane figures of their own, even if they aren't a part of the big four of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If all this talk of content seems overwhelming, that's because it is overwhelming. Simply put, if mediums are not value neutral and how we use a medium reveals what that medium values, then social media values content and has made it possible to value content to the point it can house and feed you obscenely high amounts of new content every second and get that content to you through your social media timelines. And your interaction with this content is not framed in plainly obvious terms like consuming content, but on conversations, engagement, building community, interacting with your audience, updating your friends and family on what's new, and a whole slew of other language to reframe this content production and consumption on good and desirable terms. And to be clear, it is perfectly legitimate to use social media to have conversations with people and to build community and to interact and engage with others. The problem is that it's almost impossible to use social media to do just that. You can use social media for these things, but you'll also be asked to stand underneath a waterfall of content and drink that downpour of content that our social media feeds serve to us and to our neighbor in our timelines. So to go back to the question of how do you use a timeline, how do we consume what is in those timelines? Recall from several episodes ago, the contrast between reading a book and watching a 60-minute evening newscast on television. Reading a book requires you to give a considerable amount of attention and focus for a prolonged period of time, and you need to be able to parse the vocabulary and grammar of the text in each sentence, and then you need to be able to understand each sentence in relation to each sentence, each paragraph in relation to each paragraph, each chapter in relation to each chapter, as well as link ideas, conceptual arguments, and illustrations together if you want to understand what the author is saying. By contrast, to watch your standard 60-minute evening broadcast of the news, 
You still need to be able to give some degree of attention to the broadcast in order to understand it, but the attention required is only relevant to the length and subject matter of each story, which only tends to be a few minutes at most. With each new story in the broadcast, you mentally hit reset and begin paying attention to something completely new to what you were paying attention to just seconds ago. And after a few cycles of this, you'll get interrupted with a commercial break that you can pay attention to or totally ignore. By the time the news is over, you've been processing information for 60 minutes. But that information has been compartmentalized, disjointed, and detached because of the way you consumed it. And even though you might have covered a diverse range of subject matter, you've only done so in a way that just barely skims the surface of whatever was talked about. This holds true for even other types of programming as well, even if the subject matter is internally consistent, such as an episode of a TV show. You're still only asked to give a few minutes of your attention to the show at a time, and Netflix is obviously exempt from that. Social media builds upon the precedent built by television and serves as content that is more compartmentalized, more disjointed, more disorganized, more diverse, and only requires seconds to consume instead of minutes. And because it usually only requires seconds to consume instead of minutes, we're able to consume more of it. Even if we're watching a video or reading a lengthy text wall, we can disengage at any second and go back to this habit of consuming content by the second. And because the algorithm does the heavy lifting for us and filtering the type, quantity, and source of the content it serves to us, we can consume more of the content that the algorithm serves up to us. The algorithm enables us to drink the waterfall of content. Or, at least, we falsely believe that we are able to drink it. One of the promises of social media is that through algorithms and timelines and through machine learning and AI and all of these other powerful technological forces, that we can juggle and process all of these conversations and topics and show an interest in as many subjects as we can possibly tailor our profiles to tune into. What social media doesn't tell you is that as an individual, you have a finite attention span. God did not create us as omniscient beings, omnipotent in our ability to continually process and take in new information. We cannot possibly care about or give equal attention to all of the topics and conversations social media throws at us. At best, we can give a like, a share, a retweet, but that only requires slightly more effort than just scrolling on by. We cannot give our full attention to the present world and to the digital world at the same time. To be on social media on a regular basis is to divide your attention to the world that you actually live in and the world your social media timeline creates for you. And you can't be engaged with loving your neighbor if you're busy refreshing your timeline to get new information about people and businesses that might not be anywhere nearby. You also can't think about God very well if your mind is being reshaped to think like a social media timeline. 
where your attention span becomes attuned to functioning in seconds, and there are no parameters governing the amount or type of subject matter that your mind is juggling at any moment. In short, you cannot drink from the waterfall without consequences. But we live in a world that has been convinced that it can and will continue to drink from that waterfall, despite the growing amount of evidence that the consequences to your mind, your body, your community, your friends, and your family are significant. At the same time, though, I don't think anyone would deny that there are plenty of legitimate good uses for social media. Yes, social media allows you the option of drowning in a waterfall of content, but sometimes that content can be good. It can make you laugh. It can make you think. It can make you aware of something that you can or should do. In many cases, it can legitimately make your life better. Yes, social media allows you to waste countless hours refreshing a timeline and distracting yourself from your work or from other people, but it also allows you to connect with friends, with families, with coworkers, and other professionals within your industry. You can easily connect with people who share your interests and your hobbies, and sometimes that leads to people actually going out and doing things together in the real world. And yes, social media does lead to anxiety and envy and depression and jealousy and outrage, but it also allows you the chance to express yourself, to be creative, to encourage and uplift others. In order to say that social media is solely a good thing or a bad thing requires you to downplay all the legitimate and illegitimate uses social media offers and to ignore all of the positive and negative impacts that it can bring. This is where the responses of technological optimism, technological pessimism, and technological ambiguity come into play. Do the good things about social media outweigh the bad? Does the bad outweigh the good? Does the use of social media determine whether it's good or bad? In asking questions about how technology and media affect us, we must consider the whole scope of effects that technology and media have on us, both good and bad. Social media is here to stay, and its pervasiveness will only get more and more significant as time goes on, and there's going to be no shortage of content for us to consume. How we consume that content is just as important as what we consume, and how we produce content is just as important as what we produce. But in order to know how and what we should consume and produce, which is essential to how we use social media, we must understand the positives and the negatives, the upsides and the downsides, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and go from there. In thinking about the idea of a digital spell, I think social media is perhaps the best example of a spell being cast over our society and our world, and it's a spell that is entirely based in digital technology and media. And as Neil Postman said once upon a time, to ask is to break the spell. When we begin to ask questions about how we use social media, when we use social media, why we use social media, and what social media does to us, we can begin to use the medium in ways that are constructive and healthy. 
When we fail to ask questions about social media, then we fall under a digital spell of mindlessly consuming content, of refreshing our timelines over and over and over again. All of the negative effects of social media come into the forefront, but it doesn't have to be that way. The question is, are we going to ask questions about social media? And when we start doing that, then we start seeing good change happen. We are going to pump the brakes at this point, though, because it's impossible to cleanly separate social media from the machines that make it so pervasive. Earlier in this episode, we asked the question, why is it so hard to break away from social media? Why can't we leave it? We never really answered that. And in next week's episode, we're going to look at the technology that fueled the social media revolution and ensures the saturation that social media has on our lives which, ironically, is most likely the same technology that's playing this podcast episode for you right now. Breaking the Digital Spell is a podcast that's only possible because my good friend Andrew Akins is willing to take the time out of his week to make these episodes sound really good and to get them back to me in time so that I can have them go out on Tuesday mornings as planned. He usually gets these things to me at really, really late hours of the night, sometimes as late as midnight or, or later than that. He works really hard to make sure that these episodes are done by the deadline so that we can get new episodes to you on time each and every week. And for that, I am incredibly thankful for all of his hard work. This podcast is made possible, too, because of my wife, Melissa, who not only reads the quotes that you hear in these episodes, but she also really helps me nail these episodes down in terms of the content, in terms of the editing and the flow in order for them to make sense from start to finish. I'm really thankful for her for that. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, you can like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Digital Spell, where I'll be posting articles and other writings relevant to each week's episode throughout the week. And wherever you're listening to this, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. I'm a huge fan of five-star reviews, but if you want to leave one lower than that, I promise I'll read it and give it a fair hearing. My name is Austin, and together we are breaking the digital spell.